Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is our seventh installment in our exploration of the Gospel of Matthew. And tonight we're going to be getting into chapters 15 and 16, so we are just a little bit past halfway. Programming note, next Monday we will not be uh, doing this show. So I don't know if we'll catch up after that or push the whole thing back a week, but we will not have a show uh, on the Gospel of Matthew next Monday. But we do have one tonight. Luke, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good, John. Yeah, we'll just... uh... Uh, we'll, we'll just start off where we left off. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be out of town next week. Mm-hmm. So tonight we're getting into chapter 15. Uh, any background notes you want to get first, or you want to dive right in? You know, just just for those who are first, you know, tuning in, we get we could we could go over what's been developing so far, and uh, like you're describing the. Uh, Matthew's making a case for for Christ as, as and uh, he's making a case for uh, Christ as the Messiah. Messiah means King. So we first show the begots, and uh, we show it back to David. And lo and behold, Jesus is in the line of David. And you begin to hear quite often the words uh, phrases like "Son of Man." And this takes us back to the book of Daniel, where uh, the Jews saw, uh, understood a physical manifestation of God in the heavens as the son of man. 
this image that Daniel saw. So the son of man is in the process here of establishing his, his kingdom. And the kingdom is a sacramental kingdom. Sacrament means a physical sign that gives spiritual grace. And we saw earlier that he was uh, establishing the, the first princes of his church. And we understood that uh, through prophecy, he is reestablishing the kingdom of David in, uh, in the sacramental form where the kingdom is actually united to heaven itself. And we see this uh, revealed through James at the Council of Jerusalem, for one, where James quotes Amos, explaining that the, the kingdom has been reestablished in the church for both Jews and Gentiles. You see in the, in the sacramental form, when Paul in Hebrews 12:22 says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn. This shows the spiritual reality of the kingdom. You see it in Romans uh, 9, where Paul talks about uh, uh, the, uh, the seed or the generations from Abraham. And he's showing that uh, this generation from Abraham does not need to be a physical genealogy because he says it came from Isaac. Uh, and Isaac was a miraculous birth. And our baptism is a miraculous birth. So when Peter talks about uh, baptism, he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promises for you and for your children. Well, people don't often pick up on the word promise. And that promise in itself is the new covenant. Uh, Jesus is not just, you know, a mediator in prayer. He's the mediator of the entire new covenant. And being the family of God makes us the body of Christ, with Christ as head of the body. So he's in this process of, of developing this image of the body of Christ also. And uh, would you, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I, I, well, I, I want to amplify everything that you said. And, and I, I just think, I think what Matthew is doing here is um you know you ever you ever get an expensive camera and when you first start to sight it in you know, all you see is colors and blurred images and and uh that's what's happening here you've got all these disparate uh different things that Jesus says about himself that and and that everybody else says about him that seem to be this this jumbled up mess that you can't make any sense of certainly the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't know what to do with Jesus. They can't make heads <laughs> or tails of him. Uh, and, and I understand. I, I, I get it because he says so many things that are so paradoxical and so confusing. And Matthew is drawing all these images together. He's drawing all these images together and all these descriptions together. And what he's doing is he's saying, okay, well, this fulfilled this prophecy from the Old Testament, and this fulfilled this typology from the Old Testament. And Matthew is like walking us through a through a course, showing us that Jesus is not the replacement. I, and I, I saw earlier today, ironically enough, you commenting to somebody's uh, complaint that, 
Well, Catholics can't be in in favor of replacement theology. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's not replacement theology. It's fulfillment theology. And that's that's what Matthew is showing here is that Jesus is fulfilling all of the things that they're looking for, but he's fulfilling it in such a different and radical way they don't recognize it when it's right in front of their eyes. And Matthew, it, like we've been saying, is making a case. It's almost like a court case that, yes, he is who he says he was. Yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, he is the son of David. Yes, he is the second person of Trinity. He's all of these things, and it's all embodied in one person. And he's he draws upon, he, he gives an event, and then he tells what it means. And then he gives an event, and then he tells what it means. And then he gives an event, and he tells what it means. It's so meticulous and systematic. It's, it's almost like a, a gospel and a catechism all in one. Yeah, well, he's the educated one. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But again, it, uh, we, we might add also, that a lot of the things these apostles write down, uh, it's possible that they, you know, they're so guided by the Holy Spirit in doing it, they didn't even realize the the imagery and the content that would develop out of it. Yeah, I think that there's, a, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think that, I think that what what, I think they thought they understood what they were saying. But I think what they were saying, uh, you know, the best example that I can use in a in a in a um, in a in a secular way, or the best comparison I can make, you know, the the old Beatles song, "Let It Be." Paul Paul insists that he wrote that song only about his mother, his earthly mother. But if you listen to the song, there's there's heavenly images. There's there's things in that song that have strong theological uh, um, view, and I think Paul was subconsciously channeling the Catholic faith of his upbringing into that song, and he Mother wasn't Mary even. Come to me. <laughs> What's that? Mother Mary, come to me. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and in my and in my hour of darkness, she's standing right in front of me. Uh, yeah. And then, you, you know, uh, to, to, to give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about, he says, and when the brokenhearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer. For though they may be parted, there is still a chance that they will see. Wait a minute, Paul. doesn't sound like you're talking about your mother anymore. <laughs> you broaden this thing out a little bit. And I think that it's that it's that undercurrent of inspiration that he's not even aware of as he's as he's writing the song. And that's just the best analogy that I can come up with at this point. But I think you see that here. I think that Matthew and the apostles understood what they're writing on one level, but there's undercurrents, there's larger picture levels they couldn't have been aware of when, when they were writing them. Yeah, definitely. So we're at Matthew 15.1, and we'll continue. So then came to him from Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the the tradition of the ancients? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he, he answering said to them, 
Why do you also transgress the commandments of God for your tradition? For God said, Honor thy father and mother, and he that shall curse father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, Whoever shall say to father or mother, The gift whatsoever proceedeth from me shall profit thee. And he shall not honor his father or his mother, and you have made void the commandment of God for your tradition. Hypocrites, well hath Isaiah prophesied of you, saying, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines and commandments of men. So here, because Jesus is being made known across the Galilee, the Pharisees call for reinforcements, basically, to challenge Jesus. So they do so by challenging him for not following Jewish traditions. So they are challenging God, who wrote their Old Testament scriptures through Moses and the prophets, with traditions they actually created. Uh, This traditional washing before the meal was part of halakha, uh, the daily lives of, of the Jews uh, is, is, is summed up as halak. So we should also bring to mind here that Jesus did not abolish all ceremonial law here, but uses it as an example to show how he was developing his church, not in the letter of the law, but in, in the higher purpose of the, of the spirit of the law. So it is obvious that ceremonies continue in, in the New Covenant, but it is raised to its sacramental reality, as we were just discussing. So the, the physical signs that give spiritual grace. So it is also clear that Jesus is not condemning all tradition, or Paul would be contradicting himself when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. and uh, He wrote, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have learned, whether by word or by our epistle. Or uh, to the Corinthians he wrote, Now I praise you that you remember me in all things and hold fast to the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. So, Protestant in separation from 1,500 years of truth, in turn separated from basic reasoning when it comes to how they view Scripture. And uh, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to say this, you know, as ridicule, because I, I mean to say it as just. You know, uh, getting to the truth of the matter. Mm-hmm. And uh, the greatest love is to take somebody from error to truth. So in attacking Catholics, because we hold apostolic tradition as something that is required to truly see the faith, they themselves are losing the vision of what is needed to truly see the faith. The church was living through apostolic tradition for longer than America has been a country before they decided what would compose the Bible which of course only happened because of tradition. There would be no Bible without the traditions of the fathers. Also, it is reasonable to simply say that the entire faith being lived while the apostles lived and taught can be summed up as apostolic tradition. Without it, you injure the very vitals of the gospel. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Paul writes a rhetorical question to the church participating in the Holy Mass. He says the cup of benediction that we bless is this not participation in the blood of Christ. Of course, the answer to the rhetorical question from, from the, that church that was living the faith is yes, it is participation in the blood of Christ. 
But the question should be asked, who is allowed to bless the cup? What must they go through in order to bless it? What prayers are said? Who is allowed to partake of the cup? Through apostolic tradition and even in the, the Didache, we know that it is only those who were regenerated through baptism who are allowed to partake. Uh, so to finish this, uh, this section off, let, let's go to Haddock's and uh, getting a little bit of understanding from them. Jesus says, why do you also? The Jews understanding the saying of the prophets, wash yourselves and be clean. In a carnal manner, they made a precept of not eating without first washing their hands. Uh, Venerable Bede writes, uh, the traditions here alluded to, and which they call the oral law, were respected equally with the written law by all the Jews except the sect of the Karaites. They were collected in 72 books and composed of the Kabbalah and were kept by Gamaliel and other heads of the Sanhedrin till the destruction of the temple. About 120 years after this, Rabbi Judas composed a book of them called the Mishnah, or Second Law, Afterwards, two supplements and explanations were given vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the Talmud of Jerusalem and the Talmud of Babylon uh, by these Jews are still, are still governed in ecclesiastical matters. So a lot of this yep. stuff that had nothing to do with the traditions of the church. It had to do with even some of the traditions brought back from Babylon. Right. So, so it's the, the Protestants like to play these little equivocation games. It's like, it's like if you said to me, John, I don't have any problem with what you're saying. It's your actions I have a problem with. And then I respond to that and say, oh, so you think all actions are bad. You're against actions. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm against improper actions. I'm against, so, you know, they, they like to play these the equivocation games with words like tradition uh, and say, well, Jesus here is saying he's against all tradition. Jesus here is saying that he's against all religion. Jesus, how many times have you heard Protestants say that? Jesus hated religion. No, Jesus hated hypocrisy. That's what Jesus is railing against here, hypocrisy. Uh, people who, and he, and he said so, people who on the outside looked as if as though they were whitewashed but on the inside were full of dead man's bones. And but based on these equivocations, these word games, they've created this entire self refuting notion of a Bible that stands by itself. So you eradicate tradition in favor of a Bible that's given to you by tradition. It's the ultimate self refuting uh, it's a you ever seen Luke? You ever seen a, a a dog chase itself around in circles in the middle of a room, chasing its tail around? That's, yeah, yeah, that's that's what we have here, because the Bible shows sacred tradition and human tradition to be two very different things, and yet they equivocate, equivocate the two as if they are the same, and yet without sacred tradition impossible not only to interpret the Bible but to even have a Bible as as we're going to see going forward you can't even have a Bible without the sacred tradition of the church now and the the irony of it is that 
Protestantism is man-made tradition. I mean, yeah. Luther Luther took credit for faith alone, so obviously Luther did not see faith alone in history before him. Therefore, it's a tradition of man. So it's and, and you could go through multiple multiple areas of of, of, of understand biblical understanding, and, and show over and over and over again this to be true. This be true. Uh, just. <laughs> Even the, the the way they look at things. When I when I when I use the words that they created a false construct, they they had uh, created a false construct of, of new novel interpretation definitions, and just simply the way you know they they phrase words and how they conceptualize. Uh, an, an example is all scriptures inspired by God. Well, of course it is, but how many interpretations are? You, you separate from reason right. as you yeah. attack the Catholic Church. I, I think I think that ever not separate from reason if you. Attack I think the what you just said there is so important. It needs to be amplified. All scripture is inspired by God. So they they then take the leap that all. Scripture interpretation is inspired by God. Yeah, not so. That's not what God says here. So what God said is inspired. What God said is inerrant. Now, if what God said is one thing and what you heard is something else, well, then what you heard is no longer inerrant or infallible because you didn't hear what God said. We can even expand on that picture, and uh, we talked about this way way back in the past when we were talking about sola scriptura. But just about everything that the church, I mean, I mean that Protestants try to use against Catholics in Scripture, if proper exegesis is applied, actually accuses them. Scripture right. actually accuses them. So uh, if we go further in the example of Second Timothy here, uh, all Scripture is inspired by God that a man of God may use the scripture for study and reproof. Well, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to Timothy, the bishop of Ephesus, who were ordained priests, like Paul told uh, Titus to do, who was the bishop of Crete. So this man of God will use the scriptures for study and reproof. Well, who are you reproving? You're reproving those under you as a man of God. Therefore, for studying reproof of the priest and laity under his direction, as bishops of the Catholic Church have done for 2,000 years. Right. And you're about to, as you get back into the meat of what you want to talk about here, right here, you're about to expose another example where their own man made. Uh, traditions come back to uh, to bite them. Uh, so so please proceed because I, I I can't wait to, to. Jesus said, "Honor thy father and mother, and he that shall curse father or mother, let him die the death." But you say, "Whoever shall say to the father or mother, the gift whatsoever proceedeth from me, shall profit thee, and he shall not honor his father or or, or his mother." And you have made void the commandment of God by your tradition. So the word honor in the Semitic is, is uh, koboda. 
It means to glorify. We see images in the Old Testament of children kneeling in front of their parents as they glorify their, their mothers and fathers. Jesus would not have been fulfilling all righteousness of the law if he did not glorify his own mother as only the God-man could do. So Jesus sees an endless barrage of sophistry coming from the Pharisees and cuts them off with a rebuke. He showed them how their blind devotion to the letter of the traditions instead of spirit led them to violating their own laws. So what did Jesus mean when he said, the gift whatsoever proceedeth from me shall profit thee? This gift is called Corban. Uh, we see it in Mark 7:11. Uh, for Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that shall curse father or mother, dying, let him die. But you say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, Corban, which is a gift, whatsoever is from me shall profit thee. So let's go to Haddocks for, for, for a deeper understanding of, mm -hmm. of this. So the gift whatsoever proceedeth from me shall profit thee. This gift is called Corban. Now as to the sense of this obscure place, I shall mention two expositions that seem preferable to others. The first is as if a son said to his father or mother, whatsoever was mine with which indeed I have assisted you, my parents, I have given, uh, example, promised to give to the temple. And being to keep this promise, I need not or I cannot now assist you. The second interpretation is as if the son said to his father or mother, whatsoever gift I have, I have made to God will be profitable to you as well as to me. Or let it be profitable to you which is more according to the Greek text, both here and in, uh, in Mark. And therefore, I am no further obliged to assist you. So this is the offering that I shall make to God, shall be instead of that which should be expended for thy profit. This tradition of the Pharisees was calculated to enrich themselves by exempting children from giving any further assistance to their parents. If they once offered to the temple and the priests that which should have been the support of their parents. But this was a violation of the law of God and of nature, which our Savior uh, here condemns. They committed a double crime. They either neither offered the gift to God nor succored their parents in their distress. So obviously there are no match for, for God in the flesh in a battle of wits. Right. And Protestants and Protestants are no match for Catholics in a battle of wits either, because what they do here is they they take these phrases here, and they say, and, and they use the phrases, tradition. You you, you with, by your traditions you replace the word of God. This is what they are constantly confusing, uh, accusing Catholics of. So when I hear that, Luke, I come right back to him and say, okay. What was the tradition that Jesus was talking about? What was the specific tradition that he was talking about? And, you know, most of the time they can't answer. Well, I don't remember the specific example. Oh, of course you don't. Let me refresh your memory. Okay? 
Jesus was saying that taking care of your parents in their old age and when they're uh, less able to take care of themselves is part of the commandment to honor your mother and father. And to not take care of your of your parents in their old age is violating the commandment of God. By you stating that Jesus had brothers and sisters, you are accusing Jesus of violating the commandment of God when from the cross he looks down at John and says, behold your mother, and looks down at his mother and says, behold your son, and puts his mother in the care of John. Drop the if, mic. I didn't think of that one. That was awesome. <laughs> if Jesus has brothers, the the law would demand that his mother be put in the care of his brother. So Jesus is 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 violating the law of God, the Ten Commandments, according to their here comes tradition. You know, I looked at that and, and I argued that point by saying that you really think Jesus, who is there to fulfill all righteousness, is going to get involved with petty squabbles over siblings who want to take care of their own mother. But you just took it to a whole other level that I didn't even think about. Again, he would be violating the law. Absolutely. So, so that's what I what they refer to in debating as hoisted by your own petard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're at Matthew fifteen ten through twenty. So, and having called together the multitudes unto him, he said to them, "Hear ye and understand: not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but what cometh out of the mouth this defileth a man." Then came his disciples and said to him, Dost thou know that the Pharisees, when they heard this word, were scandalized? But he answered, said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind, and leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both fall into the pit. And Peter answering said to him, Expound to us this parable. But he said, Are you also yet without understanding? Do you understand that whatsoever entereth into the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the privy? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and those things defile a man. For from the heart come forth evil thoughts, murder, adulterous, fornications, thefts, false testimony, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands doth not defile a man. So what you eat does not defile the soul, but what comes out of the mouth through an expression of the intellect by what is in the heart is what can defile the soul. <coughs> this reminds me also of Peter's vision where he saw unclean foods as he saw Gentiles as unclean people. He understood this vision and in understanding responded to the Gentile Cornelius, who Peter, as leader of the church, baptized into the church, uh, he responded as, uh, well, let's read it in Acts 10. And talking with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said to them, you know how abominable it is for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation 
but God has showed me to call no man common or unclean. So, and of course, what uh, uh, for what comes out of the mouth, Jesus said earlier in Matthew twelve thirty six, also to the Pharisees, O generation of vipers, how can you speak good things? Whereas you are evil, for out of the uh, abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of a good uh, treasure bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of evil treasure bringing forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall render an account for. It is in the day of judgment, for by the words thou shalt be justified, and by the words thou shalt be condemned. Uh, doesn't exactly equate to faith alone and once saved, always saved, does it? No, no, it doesn't. And and Luke, let's be honest. That's that's one of the things that Jesus says there that's very sobering and terrifying. When he says that every idle word that you shall speak, you will render an account for. I mean, if that doesn't sober you up, I don't know what would. <laughs> you know, so. It's, it's interesting that Jesus places the heart above the head, and thus he places love above knowledge. Well, he's doing exactly the same thing that Paul did. Paul said there's three virtues, faith, hope, and love, but love is the greatest. So it, it's interesting that faith alone would exclude love, which Paul says is greater than faith. Jesus says it's greater than faith. In fact, really, love and faith are really inseparable. So, and in it, state, go ahead. So, nowhere does Jesus say knowledge or even faith covers a multitude of sins, but He does say the Bible does say that love covers a multitude of sins. And uh, and there's, even and there's, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So even Mary Magdalene was saved by her great love. This is what Jesus said. Her great love has saved her. But outwardly, the Pharisees had everything except what mattered most, love and mercy. So so in this sense, you know, the word hypocrite is a word that comes from the Greek meaning actor, meaning somebody who is playing a role. They were just playing a role, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and if you look at this context again of the letter of the law compared to the spirit of the law, uh, Paul in Galatians uh, 3, he addresses the law as a pedagogy, which is a strict schoolmaster for a child. The Jews were under this strict schoolmaster due to the hardness of their hearts, due to what they experienced in Egypt and how they were tainted by it, 400 years of paganism. And it's interesting that when Paul begins his discourse on charity, uh, in it, he says that uh, when I was a child, I thought as a child. I behaved like a child, and I became a man and put away childish things. So what did he put away? He put away the Mosaic law of rule, fear, and temporal punishment, the letter of the law, and chose faith, hope, and charity, which the greatest is charity, or love, agape. Yeah. So we're on Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And Jesus went from thence and retired to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan who came out of those coasts, crying out, said to him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously troubled by a devil who answered her not a word. 
And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. And he answered and said, I was not sent but to the sheep that are are lost of the house of Israel. But she came and adored him, saying, Lord, help me. Who, answering, said, It is not good to take the bread of the children and to cast it to the dogs. But she said, Yea, Lord, for the whelps also eat of the crumbs that fall from the table of their masters. Then Jesus answering said to her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it done to thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was cured from that hour. Jesus told the apostles uh, not to go among Gentiles, but Jesus himself went out among the Gentiles. So if we simply look at cause and effect, it was by divine providence that the first pope would baptize the first Gentiles into the church. It was by divine providence that Peter's vision, Peter who was given the power of the keys to reestablish the kingdom of David, uh, in the reestablished kingdom of David, would say at the Council of Jerusalem that neither Jews nor uh, uh, nor Gentiles in the church are saved by the law of Moses, but through grace. So we understand that prophecy fulfilled the laws written in our hearts is grace given freely. Baptism, which destroys original sin, redeeming us into Christ, is grace given freely. The Holy Mass, which is the general redemption of the world, is grace given freely. So Peter, through the power of the keys in the kingdom of heaven, the reestablished kingdom of David through the power of the keys, separated the church from over 1,300 years of Mosaic law. So let's uh, turn again to Haddox to get a deeper look at this incident with the, with the Canaanite woman. It is probable that uh, that woman first cried out before the door and assembled a crowd and then went into the house. Have mercy on me. The great faith of the Canaanian woman is justly extolled. She believed him to be God, whom she calls her Lord, and him a man, whom she styles the son of David. She lays no stress upon her own merits, but supplicates for the mercy of God. Neither does she say, have mercy on my daughter, but have mercy on me, to move him to compassion. She lays all of her grief and sorrow before him in these afflicting words. My daughter is grievously afflicted by a devil. So in verse 23, he answered her not. It must not be supposed that our Savior refused to hear the woman through any contempt, but only to show that his mission was in the first instance to the Jews or to induce her to ask with greater earnestness so as to deserve more ample assistance and to cast it to the dogs, uh, example, i.e. to Gentiles sometimes so-called by the Jews. The diminutive word, or whelp, is used in both these verses in the Septuagint. Our Lord crosses the wishes of the Canaanite woman, not that he intended to reject her, but that he might bring to light the hidden and secret treasure of her virtue. Let us admire not only the greatness of her faith, but likewise the profoundness of her humility, For when our Savior called the Jews children, so far from being envious of another's praise, she readily answers and gives them the title of lords. And when Christ likens her to a dog, she presently acknowledges the meaning of her condition. Uh, Chrysanome uh, writes about this. He refused at first to listen to her petition, says the same saint, 
to instruct us with what faith, humility, and perseverance we ought to pray to make his servants more sensible of his mercy and more eager to obtain it, he often appears to pay no attention to their prayers till he had exercised them in the virtues of humility and patience. Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. A, be it done. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Here, Jesus Christ says, let it be done. And her daughter was healed from that hour. So powerful with God is earnest and fervent prayer. And he healed them. That Canaanite uh, woman was, was long in obtaining her request and only prevailed by her importunity, whereas the Jews were cured on declaring their infirmities. Thus were they left without excuse, seeing how much greater was the faith of this poor Gentile woman than that of the descendants of Abraham. Yeah, I think that last sentence just sums up your entire summation here. Uh, this this humble woman actually she actually shames them because she no. understood obedience, mercy, and humility better than them without the benefit of the formal teaching that they had. Uh, time and time again, we see this in the Old Testament: the lowly trumping the proud and the educated. Also, we, we can't miss the most astounding thing of all, and that is that this Canaanite woman recognizes Jesus as the Davidic king and adores yep. him and adores him. So <laughs> the Jews don't recognize him as God. They don't recognize him as the Davidic king, and yet this Canaanite woman does. How unreal is that? Hosea, I will spouse you to me in justice. I will spouse to you, me to you forever. I will call those my people who are not my people, and they shall say, "Thou art my God." It's 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 already moving toward you know to, toward that marriage. Yeah, amen. Well, Matthew fifteen twenty nine to thirty two. When Jesus had passed. From thence he came nigh the sea of Galilee, and going up into a mountain, he sat there. And there came to him great multitudes, having with them the dumb, the blind, the lame, the maimed, and many others. And they cast them down at his feet, and he healed them. So that the multitudes marveled, seeing the dumb speak, the lame walk, the blind see, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called together his disciples and said, I have compassion on the multitudes because they continue with me now three days and are not what to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint uh, in the way. <coughs> These verses are pretty self-explanatory. Uh, the people all around were, were hearing that the Messiah has come and they were hearing from people who witnessed miracles. So, it will be natural to want those close to you to be healed or for yourself to be healed, but there must have been faith present for them even to approach. So, and of course, crowds get hungry. So again, we will see here, as we previously discussed, the multiplication of the, of the food given by God, showing the mystical body of Christ perpetuated through time by the sacraments. So I'll move on to Matthew 15, uh, 33 to 39. 
And the disciples say unto him, Whence then should we have so many loaves in the desert as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves have you? But they said, Seven, and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down upon the ground, taking the seven loaves and the fishes, and gave thanks. He brake and gave to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the people. And they did all eat and had their fill, and they took up seven baskets full of what remained of the fragments. And that they that did eat were 4,000 men besides children and women. And having dismissed the multitude, he went up into a boat and came into the coast of Magadan. <clears throat> Haddock picks up uh, on this phrase, bread in the desert, or loaves in the desert. Uh, we read the phrase is reminiscent of the feeding of the Israelites with manna. And, of course, again, we see the Eucharistic formula of giving thanks, from which the Greek word Eucharist comes from. He broke and gave as what has been done in the communion of his body and blood in the Holy Mass from the beginning of Christianity. It's, it's fascinating that our Protestant brothers and sisters miss this. They, they, they miss how Jesus continuously forces us to live outside of our comfort zone to participate in his work in ways that seem impossible. And yet they're the ones that spout this notion of faith. It's just ironic. Jesus makes us prove our faith by constantly having to do the seemingly impossible. So, Lord, I got I only got seven fishes and a couple of loaves of bread here. What What is like? Bring it over here. But, Lord, there's 4,000. Bring the bread and the fish over here. <laughs> yeah, he can almost seal the conversation. So we have examples of this in the Old Testament, too. We have the miracle of the flower in 1 Kings 7, uh, 17. And, uh, oh, by the way, we Catholics, we have the Hanukkah miracle in our Bibles. And notice our Protestant brothers and sisters don't have that. But uh, and, and this is a priest, uh, the Hanukkah miracle, we'll talk about this for just a minute, Luke. That, this is a foreshadowing of Christmas. The, the eight days of Hanukkah, the feast of the festival of lights, and Hanukkah almost always fell around the same time as Christmas, and and the festival of lights, the eight days represents the eight days between the birth of Christ on December 25th and his circumcision and get receiving his name on January 1st. But this is just another example where Jesus takes the little that we have, multiplies it, and then uses it to make a much larger point. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that faith has to suspend limitations. person of faith has to believe the unbelievable, hope for the hopeless, forgive the unforgivable, and love the unlovable. I can't take credit for that. That's from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> but, if you only, but if you only believe what you see... You can't have faith. Faith is impossible. So faith without action, the, the whole idea of faith without action is absurd. And, and, and he just gave it to us over and over and over again, showing us the Eucharist. You know, in John 6, they didn't believe. It looks at, it looks at his apostles. What if you were to see the Son of Man rise, before you, rise to where he was before? Then would you believe? Rise to where he was before. Where are we getting this? Right. From the book of Daniel, the Son of right. Man in the heavens. 
If you hey, it's almost like a man, you saw God rise to where he was before, then you would you believe in my Eucharist? You can almost hear the exasperation in his voice. It's almost like, well, what's it going to take to get through to you? <laughs> what have you seen so far? <laughs> right. Uh, Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And there came to him the Pharisees and Sadducees, tempting. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning today, there will be a storm, for the sky is red and lowering. You know then how to discern the face of the sky. And uh, can you not know the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and a sign shall not be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet, and he left them and went away. So the Sadducees and Pharisees did not get along with each other, but in this incident, they they had a mutual en- enemy here in Jesus. <clears throat> so I guess enemy, my enemy is my friend at this point. Mm-hmm. So hearing that people were proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah, they were, they were not looking for a confirmation through a humble demeanor, but actually to mock him. Uh, the Sadducees did not believe that the soul is eternal and only followed the, the Mosaic law, not believing in the books of the prophets. They believed that their only obligation was the Mosaic law. So <clears throat> they're demanding a Messianic sign. They want him to perform in the heavens maybe to cause manna to fall from from heaven. In, in the Jewish tradition, the, the Messiah was to rain down manna from heaven. So obviously in a fail, another failure of the Pharisees by not understanding the Eucharist to come, as expressed even in Malachi 1.11. Uh, so having perfect understanding of their demeanor, Jesus uses their ignorance as a lesson. Uh, this brings to mind the requesting of the sign asked for that we see in John uh, 631. Um, uh, we read, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the Pharisees were looking for this tradition of the Messiah creating the manna miracle again, not understanding that it was just a type. Uh, Jesus said, Amen, amen, I say to you, Moses gave you not bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which cometh down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, therefore unto him, Lord, give us always this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So as we discuss in chapter 1, Matthew is showing us how Jesus is the true Moses who established the true exodus through baptism, who will give us the true bread of heaven. uh, But the Pharisees, in their own ignorance of the prophecies, did not even comprehend how Jesus was fulfilling them right in front of them. So they would not even be able to rationalize in their minds that people were being raised from the dead, the lame were walking, the blind were seeing. So, but there was something else they did not recognize in Christ, which is Christ fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel. So now I was now while I was yet speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my people of Israel and presenting my supplications in the sight of my God for the holy mountain of my God, as I was yet speaking in prayer, behold, the man Gabriel, whom 
I had seen in the vision at the beginning flying swiftly touched me at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he instructed me and spoke to me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to teach thee, and that thou mightest understand. From the beginning of thy prayers the word came forth, and I am come to show it to thee. But thou art a man of desires, therefore do thou mark the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are shortened upon thy people and upon thy holy city, that transgression may be finished and sin may have an end, and iniquity may be abolished, and everlasting justice may be brought, and vision and prophecy may be fulfilled, and the saint of saints may be anointed. Now thou, therefore, and take notice that from the going forth of the word to build up Jerusalem again unto Christ, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street shall be built again and the walls in straightness of, the, of times. And after sixty-two weeks, Christ shall be slain, and the people that shall deny him shall not be his. And a people with their leader that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be waste. And after the end, the war of the appointed desolation. <clears throat> And he shall confirm the covenant with many in one week. And in the, the half of the week, the victim of the sacrifice shall fail. And there shall be in the temple the abomination of desolation. And the desolation shall continue even to the consummation of the, of the end. So we see here, including the coming of Messiah in the book of Daniel, the destruction of the temple, which the Jews saw as basically a destruction of their world. They just completely rocked their world. They can no longer even offer sacrifice. So at the end of 70 weeks of years, the Pharisees should have been looking for the Messiah. The 70 weeks of years are divided into three groups, uh, a seven-week period spanning 49 years, a 62-week period spanning 434 years, and a final period of one week spanning seven years. And remember that we discussed the 18 benedictions. So, while Jesus is on the cross, Israel, Israel was praying for the Messiah, and the benediction of the Messiah that would even raise people from the dead. So as they were praying for the raising of the dead, report was going out that the dead were, were seen walking among the living. And after this time period of the 70 weeks, what do we hear? A voice crying out in the wilderness for repentance. So in addition to not seeing all of this, and many other signs, Jesus told them what sign they would receive. The sign of Jonas, the prophet, Jonas being the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, is fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection after three days. Yeah. You know, I've seen calculations on this. This prophecy is absolutely incredible. So the Jewish calendar had 360 days in it. And our current calendar is 365.25 days. So there's a little bit of a, of, of a conversion necessary. And the way that they converted it was to convert it to days, was to take the 69 weeks of years, 69 times uh, 360, to uh, come up with a sum of days and then interpret uh, to transpose those days back into our calendar 
And what they find out is that the uh, Christ, the prince, who, who this prophecy refers to, uh, would actually be cut down on April 3rd, 33 AD. It lands exactly on that day, which is astounding that it lands on the, the actual day of the crucifixion. What they miss, though, is what happens the half a week later, the three and a half years later, when Caligula places the bust of Zeus Olympus in the temple, and the prophecy reads that that's the abomination of desolation and that the end will follow. So, really, that's the point, Luke, at when that desecration of the temple happened, that's that was it. That's what sealed the fate. Now, now the clock is ticking, and the you know temple was destroyed some what uh, thirty-seven years later, but the clock is ticking. That's that's when the fate was sealed. That's when the curse was locked in. And that just brings to mind again Hebrews, where uh, it talks about uh, the old covenant waxing old and is soon be uh, finished. So there's a premonition right there when Hebrews written probably around 68 AD. <clears throat> right. So yeah, it, it's amazing. Yeah, it's just, I, I, I mean, how could there be atheists? I, I just don't get it. Yeah. They say it's so logical. And yet, well, there's the so many layers are, are beyond anything that we could even fathom. Well, the, 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 you know, I had a counselor once told me, a Catholic counselor told me I was the most brilliant debater that he'd ever met. That's what he told me. He said I was a brilliant debater. And then he said, but what you don't understand is that when somebody's determined not to listen to you, all that does is piss them off. This is exactly <laughs> what he said. And he said, that's what you don't realize, John, and don't understand. That's what you can't grasp. And that's the issue. Luke, the issue is that if they accept God, then they accept that they're accountable to that God. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what, what was it Fulton Sheen said that uh, all those who deny God have good reason for believing that a God doesn't exist or something along those lines. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, it, like I and I had this conversation with my own son, you know, years ago about this. Said, Listen, <laughs> denying hell is not a good way to escape it. <laughs> it's not a good way to escape hell uh, by pretending it doesn't exist. And a proverbial horse race is so important. You know, right. in, in that blink of an eye, you choose God or you choose self. And you better choose the right horse. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you from personal experience that I've been to the land of me, and I don't care to return. <laughs> <laughs> so we're at Matthew 16, through 5 through 11. Yep. So, and when his disciples were come over the water, they had forgotten to take bread, who said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But they thought within themselves, saying, Because we have taken no bread. And Jesus, knowing it, said, Why do you think within yourselves, O ye of little faith, for that you have no bread? Do you not understand, neither do you remember the five loaves among five thousand men, and how many baskets you took up? 
nor the seven loaves uh, among 4,000 men and how many baskets uh, you took up? Why do you not understand that this was not concerning bread? I said to you, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The apostles filled seven baskets with leftovers from the miracle of the multiplication, but they did not bring it with them onto the boat. So they're so focused on Jesus that they forgot to bring food. So not having bread of their own, and instead of seeing the true message here, the apostles thought that Jesus was telling them that even though they forgot their own food, uh, do not eat the bread provided by the Pharisees. So Jesus reminds them of how he created the miracles of loaves and the fish. And because he read their minds, explained to them that he was referring to the bad leaven of the Pharisees. So Paul said a little bad leaven spoils the whole lump. Uh, if we look forward, we could see that this warning could also apply to the Judaizers who entered the church and at the same time kept the old laws of Mosaic ceremony and ritual and circumcision. The same Pharisees Jude referred to when he said they have gone in the way of Korah. Uh, Korah challenged Moses and the ground opened up and, and fire consumed him and, and all who, who followed him. Uh, the same authority was present at the, the first council of the Catholic Church in Jerusalem where through the power of the keys separated the church from over 1,300 years of Mosaic law when he decreed that both Jews and Gentiles in the church are saved by grace, not the law of Moses. So, and as we explained earlier, the prophecy fulfilled the laws written on our hearts uh, uh, in Christ is grace given freely. So all the sacraments are grace given freely. The Holy Mass, which is the general redemption of the world, is grace given freely for the world. There is no individual salvation without the general redemption. So, so this bad leaven is why Protestants cannot see the true nature of justification. If you look at Paul's references to works in many different letters, it appears that he is constantly running into members of the church who were Jews who were boasting about keeping the Mosaic law of works. So Paul says we are saved by grace, not works. This is not works in general. Paul is addressing this same problem in Romans 3.28, where the church at Rome had both baptized Gentiles and baptized Jews when he wrote, where is thy boasting? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. So not only do we see a repudiation of the bad leaven from the baptized Pharisees, we see a phrase, law of faith. At the beginning of this letter where Paul refused the Judaizers, in Romans 1.4, he explains that it is his job to bring about obedience to the faith. And Irenaeus, uh, Irenaeus wrote that all the apostles were priests. So it's easy to surmise that this law of faith is living the religion ritual of the new covenant in the reestablished kingdom of David in obedience to the faith with, with priests and deacons that we see in the scriptures. So Paul said to the Hebrew church, obey your prelates who have the rule over you, for they watch over your souls. <clears throat> prelates are the bishops in the reestablished kingdom of David. Paul would have called it heresy to obey any other any others, including leaders of Anglican Church, Presbyterian Church, Lutheran Church, fundamentalist preachers, etc. Uh, included in this bad leaven is using the Pharisees' words to discount God's words. Jesus said, "Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive or forgiven." With no understanding of the mystical body 
the Pharisees and Protestants say only God can forgive sins. So again, be aware of the bad leaven of the Pharisees. You know, they 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 weren't. They they fell into it. Right. You know, I just I just wonder if you can draw a parallel to the uh, parable of the wheat and the tares. Is Jesus kind of alluding to the poisonous wheat here that looks like the real thing? Uh, I'm only speculating here, but, but Jesus made that distinction because the tares look like real wheat, but it's poisonous. And uh, I, I think maybe you can draw a parallel here because the bread is made from wheat. Uh, so it, it's almost like there's an analogy here of, of, of bread that's made from wheat versus bread that's made from tares. It looks like real bread, but it's but it's poison. I, and I, again, I'm just speculating that maybe there's a parallel there. Guess we apply that also to bad lady, bad deacons, bad priests, bad bishops. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. So at Matthew 16, 13 through 20, and Jesus came into the quarter of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? But they said, Some uh, John the Baptist, and others Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and says, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood have not revealed it, the, it to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind up on earth, it shall be bound and also in heaven. And whatever thou shalt loose on earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So, because God established his church for, among other reasons, to give us tools against our fallen nature, anything that goes against these tools is creations of man in fallen nature. So, man in fallen nature and his desire to separate from the Catholic Church created an entire different construct of Christianity. And, and like I discussed, these new novel false exegesis concepts and definitions, that became the traditional understanding Protestantism actually sees scripture through. They do this with not even realizing it. They're seeing it through a tradition of understanding that was developed in anti-Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So in order to separate from the church, they had to attack key doctrines of the faith and the authority of the church. Uh, we hear, behold, I will send you Elias. Many people were speculating on who Jesus was. Malachi refers to the coming Savior as Elias. Um, Herod was freaking out, thinking Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus, uh, all these opinions were expressing an image of Jesus that was much less than who he was. So uh, his next, uh, he, he asked his apostles, who do you say that I am? And Simon answering for all the apostles responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter was responding with, with nothing less than saying, you are that physical manifestation of God in human form that was in uh, Daniel's vision. And in Daniel 7.13, we'll, we'll remind our audience of this, 
where he saw one like the Son of Man in the heavens. Jesus then confirms this to Peter in his next statement, that it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to Peter, but the, the first person in the Trinity, or as Jesus said, my Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> so here the same Jesus that knew about Peter's faith before he ever met him, while in physical form, uh, and, and gave him the name Peter, which means rock, way before this incident, uh, gives further insight into why he named Peter Rock, uh, why he named Simon Rock. So, of course, he referred to him again here as Rock in relationship to his faith, but here he is showing how, in addition to using him as an example of his faith, he is going to build the sacramental church on him as a physical foundation while Jesus is a spiritual foundation. He says, And I say to thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven, and whatever thou shalt loose on earth, it shall be loosed in heaven. So, in looking back at the gospel prophecy that the kingdom of David would be reestablished, and understanding that at the Council of Jerusalem where James explained, seeing this council's prophecy fulfilled, that the kingdom of David has been reestablished in the church, we should see overwhelming evidence that God is building this church on Peter. <clears throat> Even, you know, without the squabbles of, you know, lithos or, or uh, kepha or, or whatever, it just goes way beyond that. The uh, example in Jeremy 33, uh, Jeremiah 33, 17, we see that there will always be a man, a person to sit on the throne of David. It's one of the reasons the Jews were looking for an earthly Messiah as, as an earthly, uh, earthly king. In Daniel 2.44, we see that this kingdom will never be destroyed. Paul, referring to the sacramental church, says to him, be glory in the church through all generations. Jesus says that he will be with the church until the end of time. In Isaiah 22.19, we see the kingly office, the position that Shebna has over 400 years after David. Uh, in Isaiah 22.21, we see that Eliakim is called a father to God's people. So we get the word pope from uh, papa, our, our father. So the pope is the chief steward uh, over the earthly part of the kingdom of God, which is also in heaven. Uh, there's a sacramental, uh, the spiritual ties to heaven itself. Therefore, Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So <clears throat> there's this union of this kingdom. Whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. In Isaiah 22, 22, we see that the keys of binding and loosing the law, which are keys first of apostolic succession, Go back to David, and secondly, symbolic for the authority to interpret the Torah. Um, are passed from Shebna to, uh, they're passed from Shebna to Eliakim, and the ambassador of the king is to even wear the king's robes, which, you know, uh, the king's wearing the king's robe is an understanding of uh, his dignity. He is to be seen through that dignity as as well, we get the word vicar. He's the vicar of Christ. Uh, mm -hmm. So when the apostle heard the son of man, the king, tell Peter that he was giving him the keys, they had to have a pretty good idea what was going on here. 
God is telling Peter in front of the apostles that he is the new ambassador of the king in the reestablished kingdom of David. Therefore, when at the Council of Jerusalem, Peter threw the decree that we are all saved by grace, not the law of Moses, wiped out 1,300 years of Mosaic law, uh, the group was silent. Peter had spoken. Look at what occurred here. If anyone else would have declared such a thing, this council would have fallen apart. This was even before the destruction of the temple. So before the destruction of the temple, Peter decreed to Jews in the church that you no longer need to, to, to bring your sacrifices to the temple. You no longer have to worry about unclean foods. You no longer have to participate in Jewish religion and ritual, etc. If they did not think Peter had the authority to declare such things, then they would have screamed out, this is blasphemy. They were silent. Also, Peter came back from Rome to make his decree at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, we have this in the historical record. So even at the first council of the Catholic Church, you see the grace in a proto-doctrine of infallibility uh, being played out in, in the decree of Peter. So we also need to remind our listeners that you're not going to see the authority of the church played out in direct words all over scripture. You're not going to see letters saying in plain text, God made Peter the leader of the apostles and first leader over the universal church. You're not going to see it because the letters were written during persecution. Letters that could be intercepted by Rome because they're always looking to kill the leaders of the church. Most of the early popes were martyrs. We can also look at cause and effect here. Protestantism can never rise above opinion and scripture interpretation, but Catholics can show how scripture carried over into the physical reality of the church actually coming into being, and how from the earliest years, that authority of the reestablished kingdom is seen being acted out in the church from its earliest days. The first three popes are in scripture. So one of those, Pope Clement, writing about 80 AD, uh, is an early example of this authority. He would not have written this way if he did not understand that he himself was the supreme ambassador of Christ in the reestablished kingdom of David. So when there was disobedience in the church, Clement responded with a papal bull to remind the, the disobedient of who's in charge. Uh, and let's, let's read from Clement. Owing to the sudden and repeated calamities and misfortunes which have befallen us, we must acknowledge that we have been somewhat tardy in turning our attention to the matters in dispute among you, beloved, and especially that the abominable and unholy sedition, alien and foreign to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-willed persons have inflamed to such madness that your venerable and illustrious name, worthy to be loved by all men, has been greatly defamed. Accept our counsel, and you have nothing to regret. If anyone disobey the things which we have been said by him, God through us, that you must reinstate your leaders, let them know that you will uh, involve themselves in transgression and in no small danger. You will afford us joy and gladness at being obedient to the things which we have written through the Holy Spirit. You will root out the wicked passions of jealousy. The shepherd of Hermes helps confirm the authority of Clement here. Uh, we read, therefore shall you, Hermes, write two little books and send one to Clement, bishop of Rome, 
and one to graft, uh, G-R-A-P-T-E, graft it. Clement shall then send it to the cities abroad because that is his duty. So Ignatius, who was a third bishop of Antioch, Syria, as the bishop of Antioch, understood that God established his authority in his ambassadors who resided in Rome. Ignatius, uh, to the church, uh, also, which uh, uh, I'll read uh, here from Ignatius' letter to Romans, uh, to the church also which holds the presidency in the location of the country of the Romans, worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of blessing, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy of sanctification. And because you hold the presidency in love, named after Christ and named after the Father. Again, he says, you, the church of Rome, have envied no one, but others you have taught. I desire only that what you have joined in your instructions may remain in force. Dionysus of Corinth confirms the authority of the papal bull when he wrote, Today we have observed the Lord's holy day in which we have read your letter, Pope Soter. Whenever we read it in church, we shall be able to profit thereby, as also we do when we read the let- earlier letters written to us by Clement. Uh, so let's go back to Attic's commentary in order to sum this up. And I say to thee and tell thee why I before declared, uh, John one forty two, that thou shouldest be called Peter, for thou shalt constitute the rock upon which, as a foundation, I will build my church, and that so firmly as not to suffer the gates, i.e. the powers of hell, to prevail against this foundation, because if thy, they overthrow, overturn its foundation, uh, thee and thy successors, they will overturn also the church that rests upon it. Christ, therefore, here promises to Peter that he and his successors should be to the end as long as the church should last its supreme pastors and princes. In the Syriac tongue, which is that which Jesus Christ spoke, there is no difference in genders as there is in Latin between Petra, a rock, and Petrus, Peter. Hence the original language. The illusion was both more natural and more simple. Thou art Peter, and upon this, uh, upon thee, according to the literal and general exposition of the ancient fathers, I will build my church. It is true, St. Augustine in one or two places thus expounds these words upon this rock, example, upon myself, or upon this rock which Peter hath confessed, yet he owns that he had also given the other interpretation by which Peter himself was the rock. Some fathers have also expounded it upon the faith which Peter confessed, but then they take not faith as separate from the person of Peter, but on Peter as holding the true faith. No one questions but that Christ himself is the great foundation stone, the chief cornerstone, as St. Paul tells the Ephesians. But it is also certain that all the apostles may be called foundation stones of the church as represented in Apocalypse 21.14. In the meantime, uh, St. Peter, called therefore Cephas, a rock, was the first and chief foundation stone among the apostles. 
on whose, whom Christ promised to build his church. So Peter, by divine revelation here, made a solemn profession of his faith, of the divinity of Christ. So in recompense uh, of his faith and profession, our Lord here declares to him the dignity to which he pleased to raise him, that he, to whom he had already given the name of Peter, signifying a rock, should be a rock indeed of invincible strength for the support of the building of the church, in which building he should be next to Christ himself, the chief uh, foundation stone and quality of chief pastor ruler. I think we got the the gist of that there. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll, we'll just move on a little bit here. So, although Peter and his successors are mortal, they are nevertheless endowed with heavenly power. Chrysostom writes, in, in, in the sentence of life and death passed by Peter to be attempted to be reversed, but what he declares is to be considered a divine answer from heaven, and what he decrees is a decree of God himself. He that heareth you heareth me. The power of binding is exercised, first by refusing to absolve, Second, by enjoining penance for sins, forgiveness, by excommunication, suspension or interdict. Fourth, by making rules and laws of the government of the church. Fifth, by determining what is faith by the judgments and definitions of the church. The terms binding and loosing are equivalent to opening and shutting, because formerly the Jews opened the fastenings of their doors by untying it, and they shut or secured their doors by tying or binding it. Dr. Whitby, a learned Protestant, uh, divine thus expounds this and the pre- uh, preceding verse. As a suitable return to thy confession, I say also to thee, thou art, P- thou art by name Peter, i.e. rock. And upon this rock, who art this rock, I will build my church. Now give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven the power of making laws to govern my church. Uh, Hammond, another Protestant uh, divine, explains it in the same manner. He says, what is there meant by the keys is best understand by Isaiah 22.22. Here they signify ruling the whole family or house of the kingdom, and this being by Christ accommodated to the church denotes the power of governing it. Yeah, a key phrase here is uh, in the Greek is the phrase epitatiti, and uh, this this phrase means the exact same or the very same, and this blows up this whole Petros Petra uh, paradigm that you hear some Protestants play. So the exact phraseology, Luke, is Petros Kai epitatiti Petra. That's exactly how the sentence reads, and it literally means you are rock. And upon this very same rock. So if if Jesus were trying to make a contrast here, as as some have alleged, the word Allah would be used, not the word Kai. Allah means but, Kai means and. But even more than the word Kai, which means and, is this epitatiti. So the emphasis here is is inescapable, Luke. It's and on this same. So. Uh, 
this is my red car, and I drive this very same red car to work. So in order to interpret the sentence as they understand it, it would be, this is my red car, and I drive this very same blue car to work. You have to do violence to the sentence to come to the conclusion that they come to. Um, and this phrase, epitotiti, is used one other time in the New Testament. Do you know where? Go ahead. It also has to do with Peter. Epitotiti. On this very same night, you will deny me three times. <laughs> you know, and we're talking about what what they actually have to deny. <laughs> I mean, right. you have to deny the whole gospel message of the of the kingdom being reestablished. And well, not only did, not only that, can't see that outside of that understanding. Right. Not only that, but you have to uh, you have to deny the entire uh, discourse. Because uh, I'm, I'm scrolling back up so we can read it. It's okay. So, so now just, just listen to this. All right? Because this is, this, this whole discourse, hold on a second. Okay, this whole discourse starting with verse 13. I, I just want you to count out to me every time that you hear me say the word you. Okay? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to start with verse 17. And count out to me every time you hear me say the word you. All right? And Jesus answered to him and said, Blessed are you, to Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, three, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, or you, are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the entire discourse is directed towards Peter seven times. He says you. And that's a spiritual number. <laughs> right. So we're supposed to believe that it's you, 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 me, you, <laughs> you know, it just, and it, and it doesn't make any sense. And then the last part of it is that Petra is a woman's name. So Jesus cannot refer to himself as Petra. It's a woman's name. Right, right. And it, that brings to mind uh, Simon, Satan has desire to sift you, plural. The church, right. like we, and I have prayed for you, singular, that you may strengthen your brethren. So God right. is praying to Peter to strengthen his brethren, which are all the apostles, but it's basically the church. Right. <laughs> and you add that to everything else. I mean, you, you could take a couple, you take a couple words, and you create a false exegesis of these words, and then you deny everything else. That supports those words. The entire gospel message supports those words and showing the entire formation of the reestablished kingdom of David. Right. So at Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus uh, began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the ancients and scribes and chief priests 
and be put to death and the third day rise again. So first, Jesus has the apostles confirm that he is the true son of God and that Peter will have authority in the reestablished kingdom of David. He begins explaining to them that even though he is establishing this kingdom, he's showing why he's establishing the position of supreme ambassador. The king is not first to rule, but to die. The curse that was held in abeyance needed to be fulfilled. So in order for any of the remnant uh, Jews to be saved, in order for baptism, which removes original sin, correcting the error of Adam and Eve, uh, to come into being, in order for the true Passover, for the general redemption of the world to be established, God had to die. So the greater the one you sin against, the greater the reparation needed. I mean, it's just, you know, to put it in earthly terms, it's so clear what Jesus is doing here. He's training his replacement. I mean, it's very Anyone that want, that's reading this should be able to get that. So first he tells them what the church is going to look like after his earthly mission. He constructs this image for them, walks them through it, and only then does he begin to tell them, okay, this is the way the mission is going to go. Because if, if he didn't prepare them first for what they will do after, there, there's no way they could have been able to comprehend it and accept it. Uh, no, the, no. They, they would have felt abandoned and orphaned. I'm sure they had an awful lot of aha moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're at Matthew 16, 22 through 28. And Peter, taking him, began to rebuke him, saying, Lord, be it far from thee, this shall not be, be unto thee. Who, turning, said to Peter, Go behind me, Satan, thou art a scandal unto me, because thou savorest not the things that are of God, but the things that are of men. Then Jesus says to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For he that shall save his life shall lose it. And he that shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his own soul? For what exchange shall a man give for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then will he render to every man according to his works. Amen, I say to you, there are some of them that stand here that shall not taste death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Peter, out of love, was telling Jesus that he would save him from those who wanted him dead because he had yet to understand why Jesus had to die. So Simon told Mary that Jesus would be a sign of contradiction. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, 21-23 reads, His body shall not remain upon the tree, but shall be buried the same day. For he is accursed of God that hangeth on a tree. In addition to taking on the curse uh, the Israelites were under, as the true Israel, Jesus also destroyed the temple. And the punishment for doing so was the curse, as we uh, were about to read here in Ezra 6.11. Uh, this, this is where you really got to connect the, the spiritual mysteries of Scripture together. So, in the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king decreed that the house of God should be built, which is in Jerusalem, in the place where they may offer sacrifices, and that they laid the foundations that may support the height of three 
score cubits in the breadth of three score cubits, three rows of unpolished stones and so rows of new timber. And the charges shall be given out to the king's house. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the temple of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple of Jerusalem and brought to Babylon be restored and carried back to the temple of Jerusalem to their place, which also were placed in the temple of God. Now, therefore, uh, uh, Thethania, governor of the country beyond the river. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm not even trying that one. <laughs> <laughs> and your counselors at Afro uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Who are mm-hmm. beyond the river depart from, depart far from them. And let that temple of God be built by the governor of the Jews and by their ancients, and that they may build that house of God in its place, and also have commanded what must be done by those ancients of the Jews, that the house of God may be built, to wit, that the king's chest, that is, of the tribute that is paid out of the country beyond the river, the charges be diligently given to those men, lest the work be hindered. And it shall be necessary to let calves also and lambs and kids for holocaust to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the custom of the priests that are in Jerusalem, be given them. So he's talking about rebuilding the temple. Then he goes on, uh, let the oblation offerings to God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of his, his children. And I have made a decree that if any whosoever shall alter this commandment, a beam be taken from his house and set up, and he be nailed upon it, and his house be confiscated. Well, it's God himself that altered that commandment in order to, you know, establish the new covenant. Jesus destroyed the old order and took on the curse. And like we saw in uh like we uh, talked about earlier, Paul appears to have a premonition of this when he wrote, Now in saying a new, he hath made the former old, and that which decayeth and groweth old is, is near its end. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to look at, uh, you know, even these other books and how, you know, just these little things create these bigger pictures. Mm-hmm. It's just mind-boggling. <laughs> And and Protestants missed this entirely. I'm sorry, I'm hearing a little bit of an echo. Um, never does Jesus say, I go to the cross and do it all so you don't have to do anything. <laughs> he never says that. On the contrary, he says that our responses should be, take up your cross and follow me. So... Yeah, Jesus does what none of us can do, but this idea that we that we check out scot free, it's just uh it's not in the gospels. Well they probably also don't look at the book of Ezra too much. <laughs> right. So Protestants point to Jesus saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, as proof that Jesus was not establishing and authority to Peter. Uh, of course, we just provided overwhelming uh, evidence of the contrary. So, of course, they also add the, the three times denial of Peter, but leave out the fact that after the denial, Jesus, in his compassion and love for Peter, 
made him reverse the three times denial with with three times uh, I love you and feed my feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And uh, Haddock's cam, uh, commentary expands on this in this in this way. Go after after me, Satan. Uh, the words may signify be gone from me, but out of respect to the expositions of the ancient fathers who would have these words to signify come after me or follow me, I have put with the Reigns translation, go after me, Satan is the same as an adversary and is here applied to Peter because he opposed out of mistaken zeal Christ's passion without uh, which the great work of man's redemption could not be effected. So Peter, however, knowingly or innocently raised in opposition <laughs> against the will of God, against the glory of Jesus, against the redemption of mankind, and against the destruction of the devil's kingdom. He did not understand that there was nothing more glorious than to make of one's life a sacrifice to God. Thou dost not, example, thy judgment in this particular uh, is not com uh, conformable with uh, that of God. So hence our separated brethren conclude that Christ did not, in calling him the rock in the preceding verses, appoint him the solid and permanent foundation of the church. This conclusion, however, is not true because as St. Augustine and theologians affirm, Peter could fall into error in points regarding morals and facts, though not in defining or deciding on points of faith. Moreover, St. Peter was not, as St. Jerome says, appointed the pillar of the church till after Christ's resurrection. And it was not till the night before Christ suffered that he said to Peter, Behold, Satan hath desired to have thee, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and thou being once converted, confirm thy brethren. Jesus said, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny thyself himself and take up his cross and follow me. For he that will save his life shall lose it, and he that shall lose his life for my sake shall, uh, shall find it. So Jesus is teaching the apostles that following him is dying to self, even often to the point of, of giving up one's life. Uh, he is teaching them how the soul is eternal and, and physical death is nothing compared to union with him. We're here for a blink of an eye compared to eternity. And like I said, in that blink, we choose Christ or we choose self. So <clears throat> choosing Christ includes choosing truth revealed by the Holy Spirit as it is revealed to the soul. This is a lesson for our Protestant brothers and sisters here. Uh, uh, I believe as James said, he who knows what is right and refuses to do so, for him this is sin. So it's it's of the conscience that, that we need to follow. We can't deny it. So for our Protestant brothers and sisters, do I always choose truth as it is revealed to my soul? Or do I choose not to be obedient to God as I try and rationalize away truth revealed. I always come back, uh, come back to this, uh, this verse because it, it is so important. He who knows what is right and refuses to do so, for him this is sin. That's our foundation to even finding truth. Right. And, and, and Jesus, you know, people are scandalized by Jesus saying to Peter, you know, get behind me, Satan. Jesus used hyperbole a lot. Because he, he really needed to crash these things home, the the that 
Anything that stands between us and serving God must be severed from our lives. So, you know, people say, well, how could Jesus call Peter the rock and then turn right around and call him Satan? What what Peter did that, what uh, Jesus is doing there is dramatic effect. He wants Peter to see the temptation behind his misguided, as you said, his misguided zeal. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, from from the from the heart of a right temptation, the devil can really turn us against uh, God unwittingly by by using our misguided temptations or our misguided zeal. Um, you know, many as a person has fallen into sin because of of a, a, an a, an overzealousness. Uh, you know, for instance not knowing the limitations between righteous indignation and wrath. If we, if we let our anger get the best of us, then we fall into sin. And this, this is the kind of thing uh, that that's happening here. And Jesus wants Peter to recognize who's behind that temptation. So Peter, Jesus is not literally calling Peter Satan. He's not saying he's possessed. I mean, come on, people. <laughs> that's not what's <laughs> happening here. But but he wants Peter to recognize where his weakness and temptation is coming from. Now, and, and people think they could get in a battle of the wits with a preternatural intelligence. Yeah, I, I mean, this is an intelligence that makes you know people like Freud look like kindergartners. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's had from the beginning of time to create his deception. Satan is called the, the the you know the father of lies because his goal is to keep people from truth, right? And so, and they and what they don't understand is the sacramental life is the narrow road. And what do we hear about the narrow road? Uh, basically, wide is the road that leads to destruction, because unless you're on that narrow road, you are being inundated by that preternatural intelligence. Unless you're living in that sacramental life and obedience to the faith, Paul calls us to obedience to the faith. And he says, obey your prelates who have the rule over you for the watcher of their souls. Well, uh, I'll emphasize this again. Paul would never have said that unless he's talking about prelates in the reestablished kingdom of David. He's not talking about Presbyterians, folks. He's not talking about SDA. He's not talking about fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. There's only one church that he would say obey prelates, which are bishops in. That is the universal Catholic church that we just showed Peter the rock of. Yeah, if you get to the point where you understand that the Bible points to an authoritative church, that should be checkmate for you because the Catholic Church is the only church that can even plausibly claim to be that church. So that's why Sola Scriptura is so important to Protestants. It's absurd. It's, it's, in, it's indefensible. It's illogical. But it's essential to them because once you give up, once you surrender in that fight and you and you admit that there is a, a church of authority that is given to us in Scripture, that is shown to us in Scripture, 
Well, it's, it's checkmate at that point, Luke. There's only one church that could even, it's absurd for any church to even claim to be that church other than the Catholic Church. Uh, exactly. And, and it's evil because what brings you closer to the Eucharist is of God. What pushes you away cannot be. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's just the bottom line. And that Eucharist is in the reestablished kingdom of David. And in order to truly receive it and the graces you receive from it, you have to be baptized into that church to destroy the original sin so that you could participate with the heavenly host. Nothing unclean can enter it, says the, the book of Revelations. But what is not understood is that this is the church militant on earth united to the church in heaven where nothing unclean can enter it. No original sin can enter it. No original sin can receive the graces that God has given you in this, in the sacramental life on that narrow road, which is the ultimate defense against Satan's preternatural deceptions. So we'll go on, and we're at 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with angels, and then shall he render to every man according to his works. Amen, I say to you, there are some of them that stand here that shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So some think, some think this time of coming in his kingdom means that we saw, uh, like we saw in Acts 1, Jesus sending up into heaven. Others think it is an image of Christ's establishment of the church through Pentecost, where through the sacraments we unite with him as his body and he as the head of the body, which establishes the sacramental kingdom. And many that were there did not taste death before Pentecost. So Pentecost established the kingdom of Christ, and we are born again into the kingdom through baptism. John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus said, but if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. So on the day when the temple uh, built by King Solomon was complete, Solomon, who was a type for Christ, there were 120 priests present. At Pentecost, 120 apostles. On the same day the temple was completed, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple. At Pentecost, Mary, the true Ark, was present in the, in the body of Christ, the true temple. On the same day the temple was complete, fire from heaven came down to consume the offerings. At the true Pentecost, tongues uh, that appear as fire rested on everyone's heads. After Peter speaking for the church, put the fear of God into thousands, and they were baptized into the body of Christ. Yeah, you know, I'd invite anybody that wants to understand this to to just read from Revelation chapter 11, verse 19 to 12, 17. None of this is accidental, folks. It, none of this is, is, oh, well, those are nice sounding coincidences, Luke, and they, they, they kind of sound like the same situation. It's not coincidence, folks. One is typology and one is fulfillment. God is showing us what he's going to do, and then he does it. So the Mary is not similar to the Ark of the Covenant, is the Ark of the Covenant. So it is, it's, you know, they say, well, you're comparing Mary to the real Ark of the Covenant. Uh, no, 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 no. Mary is the real Ark of the Covenant. The one in the Old Testament was the model. 
That was the foreshadowing. You know, so the Pentecost of the Old Testament was the model. The Pentecost of the New Testament is the fulfillment. The priesthood of the Old Testament is the model. The priesthood of Melchizedek is the fulfillment. I mean, it just it just goes on and on and on. The manna from heaven of the Old Testament is the model. The Eucharist is the fulfillment. In fact, we're working right now on a on a Christmas special, Luke, and there's nothing about it that's accidental. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, in a manger, it, it, which means uh, is an eating trough, and the shepherds were actually tending the sheep that were to be sacrificed in in the uh, temple. And they swaddled the baby sheep so that be, they could be unblemished lambs <laughs> over and right. over and over and over again. <laughs> right. And, and none of this is coincidence. It's so so going back to the objection that we saw that I saw earlier on Facebook, you know, it said, Well, Catholics should never believe in replacement theology. It's not replacement <laughs> theology, folks. It's not replacement. It's not this for that. It's not replacing a zebra with a kangaroo, okay? It's it's a moth become uh, it it is a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. That's what this is. It's it's a it's a metamorphosis. It's a completion. It's a fulfillment. It's a seed becomes a flower. That's what that's what's happening here. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And if you look at the Bible any other way, other than as you've described, I love the way you describe it, it is a seamless fabric. None of it makes any sense to you. Then it's just uh, a million jumbled up verses in assorted order, and each one means whatever it is that you want it to mean. Not a recipe for finding truth. The synagogue is the promise, and Catholicism is the fulfillment of the promise. Amen. Well, we can probably wrap it up. Okay. So we're not we're not going to be back next week, but the week after. And does that take us through sixteen? Are we complete with chapter sixteen? Yeah, we'll be, we'll be going through 17 and 18. Okay. So we will be back two weeks from today with uh, picking it up at the beginning of Chapter 17 of the Book of Matthew. And, uh, and would you end us with a prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a stay, our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. God bless. You have a great night, and I'll see you in two weeks. Okay. Looking forward to it. Ever feel judged at the gym? You don't know how to use the leg curl machine? At Planet Fitness, get energy without the judgment. Join the judgment-free zone today during the Big Fitness Energy Sale for 24 cents down, $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, January 12th. Be home club for details.